You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Is anyone going to say anything to Jimmy Butler? No, we're not. I totally love this. I love no. the Jimmy Butler extensions. No. I love no it. No one is going to say love. anything. <laughs> love. <laughs> we're not going to say anything. We're going to embrace it just like I have extensions in my hair right now. We are embracing Jimmy Butler. Welcome to the beauty supply store, Jimmy Butler. We're saying nothing. Heidemann finds Bonner. Bonner looking for space. Leans in. Can't hit the three. That will do it. The Las Vegas Aces take game one. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Take Line. I'm your host, Jordan Liggins, and I'm joined by my guy, Jamel Johnson. We're standing in for Jason Concepcion as he continues to enjoy a well-deserved R&R. We've got a great show for you today. The WNBA Finals are underway. The Las Vegas Aces beat the Connecticut Suns 67-64 to in Game 1. Jamel and I have some thoughts on the game, the series, the playoffs, all of it. Then we'll recount the U.S. Open, which came to a close on Sunday with Ben Rothenberg of Racket Magazine and talk fantasy football with Chris Towers of CBS Sports. Jamel, we talked a little bit yesterday. <laughs> yeah, my inter- I'm sorry about my I paid my bill on time, I swear we did a Twitter spaces and Jamel was in a monologue. Like, I feel like you were pouring your heart out and all oh. we heard was uh, 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 like you were a robot. So here's your chance. Tell me. I was truly going off. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, shouts out to Erica McCall. Go Mystics. Yes. I feel like Connecticut lost their lost their shot at. I, let me start this by saying. Mm-hmm. I like to issue an apology to the Connecticut Sun. Oh I think, wow! I think the last time I came on this show, I came on here and I talked down. I talked down bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, I was dead wrong. Courtney Williams, I'm sorry. Kurt Miller, I'm sorry. <laughs> Alyssa Thomas, I'm sorry. Dewana Bonner, I'm sorry. Letitia yeah. Heidemann, Lo Siento. They were waiting on this apology, but it's not only you though, right? Like everybody comes with the energy with Connecticut Sun. We write them off. They have, I always say they're the bridesmaid, never the bride. They've made it to the finals. They keep winning. But can they pull it out? This year, we have the Aces who swept the awards. Asia Wilson, MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, Jackie Young, Most Improved, Becky Hammond, Coach of the Year. Kelsey Plum even won all-star MVP with the, the fruit tiny salad trophy. Cup, the, <laughs> yeah. the fruit salad bowl. Very small. Then they won the Commissioner's Cup. And Chelsea Gray won the MVP for that. So, like, the Aces are clearly the number one team here. But, like we were talking about yesterday after game one, Connecticut is feeling confident after that win. Like, they were smiling in the press conference. They were like, yeah, we're here. We're not, you guys thought you were going to blow us away. We're still here. I can't think of a person who would be more energized by playing in Vegas than Courtney Williams. (laughs) What do you mean by that? I mean, she loves the lights, baby. She does, yeah. The glitz, the glam. And she's playing some good-ass defense. Like, I feel like the last time they made the final she was like known as a scorer mm-hmm. and she's just like look i'm gonna shoot these fucking two dribble pull-ups and i'm just gonna strap up yeah and she's been playing some really good defense since the semis they're turning it up as a team i mean i don't know it is this kurt miller's like personality i i feel like it's really Alyssa thomas at the head of all of it 
Totally. And like the coach might not even matter, but like <laughs> these yeah. guys, they're just dog, like super dogs. Like, like what if PJ Tucker was sober talking about dogs? What if PJ Tucker was like times seven? Like that is, it's like T, it's PJ Tucker. Who else is on this team? Pat Bev is on this team. Like, just Bro. those personalities, that is Connecticut. We read you the score. It was 67 to 64. The Aces normally score in the 90s, 100. That's what type of defensive team Connecticut is, and they are disruptors. They just mess up everything that you have going on. And they don't seem concerned with scoring. They don't. They're like, we don't care. We might never shoot a three. Yep. It doesn't matter. Alyssa Thomas doesn't have any shoulder blades. <laughs> no, no labrums. Um, if you turn on a WNBA broadcast for 30 seconds, they will mention that she has uh, zero labrums. But the, <laughs> I think that's the funny part is Connecticut will win a game three to two. Like they are okay. <laughs> not scoring. And we've seen that in the semis of them going through really deep dry spells of not scoring, not making layups. I don't know their three point shooting percentage, but it's like one for five. Like they don't even shoot them. It's everything is in the paint. Kurt Miller literally came on a broadcast. He was mic'd up and said, y'all are going to get me fired. Yes. I love that. If you don't make a layup. If you don't make a layup, because that was like, that was shocking. But yesterday they made layups. They made tough shots. They made push shots, floaters, still nothing really outside the key. But they still, you know, down to the wire to an Aces team that does shoot threes. We have to talk about Chelsea Gray and everything that she's doing. I don't believe she's human right now. I think the jury's out on that, but she, well, at the end of the game, a couple key turnovers. <laughs> I've never seen a game end on back-to-back rips. Back-to-back. When you were up by, they were up seven. by six? Seven. Seven. They Chelsea were up Plum by seven. split a pair of free throws. Yes. You know I'm tracking this hard. I had Vegas <laughs> minus six. They're up seven. Two rips. You haven't gotten the ball taken from you in months. Months. Back to back rips. Oh, by was, who? None other than Alyssa, Alyssa Thomas. Thomas. Grinning. Oh, man. Like the fucking Joker. Like the Joker. She, you guys, she was smiling as Chelsea Gray, who already has 20 points, just hitting unbelievable shots. Hit her with, hit her with one on the left. She did. The left side. Hit her with a floater in her mouth. A fadeaway, hand up in her face. Chelsea Gray just scored on her. Next possession, Chelsea Gray comes down. Alyssa Thomas smiling in her face as Chelsea Gray tries to go for the dagger three-pointer to seal the deal. Alyssa Thomas smiles, blocks it. She's like, dog, I'm not Paul George. You think I'm Paul George? (laughs) What do you think this is? (laughs) She is not. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to besmirch the man, but you remember what happened. It's fine. I assume every NBA player listens to Take Line. Yes. And uh, I've been on this uh, exact broadcast uh, throwing all the shade to Paul George and how I think he wears extension in his braids. And um, I stick by that. I stand by that. I know this isn't in the docket, but (laughs) is anyone going to say anything to Jimmy Butler? No, we're not. I totally love this. I love (laughs) The Jimmy Butler extensions. No, I love no it. What is gonna say? Love. <laughs> love. <laughs> We're not gonna say anything. We're gonna embrace it just like I have extensions in my hair right now. We are a- embracing Jimmy Butler. Welcome to the beauty supply store, Jimmy Butler. We're saying nothing. Uh in my mind, Duncan Robinson walked in the locker room and seen him and was like. Look Did your hair grow? Yeah. Hey, <laughs> dude. Whoa. <laughs> That's always a question. I would come back. My hair is down to my butt. Yesterday, it was not like that. Why are you going to ask me if my hair grew overnight? No. Do you, do you think Tyler Hero asked to touch it? Totally. 
He's like, what does it feel like? Is it heavy? He totally asked if it was heavy. I, I just want to say something. <laughs> we don't. We can't. But I don't know We're what not. it would be. No, it looks great. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, and, WBA. <laughs> yeah, WBA is back and better than ever, and uh, I got better than ever. Aces and four. What say? Aces and four. I like that. I wanted to go to five games just because more games, the better. I'm having a hard time just realizing that this WNBA season is going to be over soon. It was so much fun. Such a great season. I do think Connecticut, I do think Aces hold down home court. First game back to Connecticut, they steal it. And then the Aces seal the deal. So... I guess I I agree with you. Aces and four. Yeah. Aces win a little more comfortable. No mistakes down the stretch. It's going to yeah. look like the same game, but without the back-to-back turnovers to close it, right? And then mm-hmm. game three, Connecticut wins 17 to 14. <laughs> Just a defensive brawl. A football game. They put on pads. A football and game. They go play a damn football game. Stay yes. tuned to the for the C block. <laughs> and then yeah, game four. You gotta win it. Gotta win it on the road. A lot of championship teams, you gotta win it on the road. Because if mm-hmm. you let it go to five, hey man. It's a toss-up. That's anyone's game. Yeah. Home court doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's too much of a toss-up. Like you have to take care of business. And I feel like the aces have been doing that this whole season. So I'm not worried. I feel good. I feel like they they took it in the mouth, you know, like the Connecticut sign punched back in that second quarter, third quarter. They didn't they realized they weren't just going to roll over. So I um, I'm still going aces, though. Who do you have winning finals MVP? I mean, it's got to be Chelsea Gray. It's got to be Chelsea Gray at this point. At this point, it might have to. But, well, I don't know. Because then if they change tactics and maybe based on how the last game went, Mm -hmm. they could decide to change tactics and be like, look, we're giving the age of the ball. I don't give a shit. I don't care how hot you are. We're giving age of the ball. Mm -hmm. If they end the game like that, it could be hers. But right now I'm saying Chelsea. Okay. Okay. Kelsey Plum, you know, if she gets get the jumper together, huh? She got to find it. I don't know where it is. She hit one three in the fourth in a three-point game. So that's like, we can't actually ask for anything I know. more than that, but it'd be Great tight. time to turn it on. Yeah, it'd be great <laughs> if you could just do that. And they still won with her scoring, what was it, six points? Something, yeah. I hope that she's not trying to shoot herself like back in the game because it felt like that at the beginning she was taking quick threes and I'm like what are you doing pass it to your MVP chill but she has to be like okay I scored six points I was like 0 for 7 until the fourth quarter and my team still won I can gradually yeah get back in this. I can get in the gym right now, but my team needs more of me, but we also still won with me doing the bare minimum. So I hope she doesn't try to force the issue because that could be a problem. Yeah, and uh, what else? I mean, we haven't talked about uh, Bria Jones. Brianna Jones. Brianna Jones. So good. That, 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 that center, backup center? Or, or John yeah. Quill. Hey, John Quill. John Quill. She had John, a great game. John Quill showed up, man. I mean, it. it's weird that like, Connecticut has scores, but they're yeah. just like, fuck it. Like, Heidemann <laughs> is a great three-point shooter. John they're Jones only. <laughs> is amazing. And Dewana mm-hmm. Bonner, also, come on. these That's three buckets. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, we don't care. Yeah. It's like nope. missing shots gets them hype. It reminds me of when watching Russ with the Wizards. Mm. Every game with the Wizards, he would throw one of the craziest turnovers I ever saw in my life. <laughs> And then it would make him so mad that he would play great. So that's why you gave us Laker fans rest? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, have that. Enjoy. <laughs> hey, you're wel- hey, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, we're not going to go down that road. We are talking uh, about something sure? positive. Sure wanna- <laughs> we're talking about something positive in John Quill sure? Jones. This, yeah. I think the the secret storyline is that John Quill Jones 
was the MVP in last season. Asia was the MVP 2020 and this season. So we have both the past MVPs going against each other. And I was wanting JJ to step up. And I feel like she did. Um, she had 15 points, seven for 15 from the field, nine rebounds. She sat for an extended time going into the fourth quarter. But looking forward for Connecticut to keep having a fighting chance, I think you're right on the nose. Like, they have to use their scores. They are going to have to score a little bit, just a little bit more. Dewana Bonner had three points. She went one for nine. Like, we know that's not going to happen again. She's such an energy player. But I, I think they're just going to have to put the ball in the basket just a little more. Simple and plain. I think that's fair. I think that is pretty fair. I think, you know, I think we got it. Great. Keys to the game. <laughs> so that's that. Now let's recap the U.S. Open with Ben Rothenberg. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The dust has settled in Queens, New York. Shout out to all my folks in Left Rack City, uh, Corona, uh, Astoria, Long Island City, all, all my guys working at the ferries. Uh, the 2022 U.S. Open is now a beautiful memory. From Serena's last dance, allegedly, to Tiafo's magical run to the semis, the competition gave us no shortage of moments and storylines to dig into here to recap the final Grand Slam event of the year and help me get one of those ball boy polos is Ben Rothenberg of the No Challenges Remaining Podcast and Racket Magazine. Ben, welcome to Take Live. Thanks for having me, Jamal. I'm not sure on the polos, but I, will, I, I can call some people. <laughs> but if you, yeah, <laughs> yes. I, look, and I'm not, I'm not looking for a deal. I will pay full price. You could tax Okay. Me. Okay. Okay. I just need one, and I pro- they yeah. don't even make them in three X. But if they <laughs> did, if they think about going big and tall for the ball boys, I'm into it. All right. Well, you know the ball boys are one thing. How about the winner <laughs> of the event, the men's final, Carlos Alcaraz, a baby. Yeah. A little nineteen year old baby, a fawn, <laughs> crawling from the woods and hitting unbelievable shots with placement and power. Can you please, like, kind of put into perspective how unreal it is to be 19 and win the U.S. Open? I mean, it's such a dramatic jump over so many generations in tennis. We still mostly had this old guard of, of players who've still been the relevant dominant players in, in tennis. I mean, Wimbledon was won by Novak Djokovic, who's 35. Rafael Nadal is 36 and won the French Open this year. I mean, so there's a huge leap to skip over basically 16, 17 years to get to this 19-year-old being the next champion. And there's lots of guys who've been sort of waiting for their turn of, well, when Djokovic and Nadal would finally age out and they'd have a chance to to win. And then all of a sudden, this younger fawn, as you call him, comes out of the woods and, and tramples everybody. And 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 it's really remarkable to see. And we, he's become the youngest number one in ATP history, coming in at 19 years old. Um, he comes at a time when it's a bit of a interregnum. There's definitely kind of a shift happening where those old guys are aging out. Um, but it does seem like a real potential more sort of potential permanent new guard guys here. There's not really sort of a transition period 
because there were some people in this draw who made it deep who wouldn't have been expected to make it deep and maybe they had a chance and sort of a bit of a this transitional moment like i said um tiafo might fit into that category honestly in terms of people who just sort of seized the moment and saw an opening and, and went for it who weren't quite expected to get there this quickly uh mm -hmm. but alcaraz has been on the on the uh shortlist people who are future potential number ones for him to get it this quickly uh is, is remarkable just, just looking just three years ago he's ranked like 460 and now he's number one so wow pretty 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 quick uh pretty nuclear glow up there his career is like a video game career like that's how it is when <laughs> yeah. i play career mode on virtual tennis three and mm -hmm. i put it on easy mode exactly i go from 400 to number one pretty fast no, it is exactly like that. It's exactly like a video game you put on like too low difficulty mode or a video game you played a lot of times before and you start a new character, but you already kind of know how everything works. Like he's just showed up being able to do things you wouldn't expect someone. And we just haven't seen people who are 19 do this. Yeah. And the sport has really been dominated by older players. Uh, like the Djokovic and Nadal, Federer was in there not that long ago. That guard of people had really had an iron grip on the tour. And there's only been two Grand Slams ever won by guys who were born in the 90s. Whoa. So this is whole cohort of people who are what now, like between uh, uh, 32 and, and 23, I guess, roughly, who've between them, they've only won two Grand Slam titles ever. And here comes this kid born in 2003, already winning his first. So that show, oh, shows you how, how ahead of schedule he is. <laughs> Everybody's in the dressing room talking about Nickelodeon. <laughs> and then here He's comes like, this little that? baby. <laughs> <laughs> my only question before we move on is, yeah. you know, you were you were there at the beginning. And my main question, the tennis, his tennis is wonderful. Did you see him sweat? Because I'm kind of concerned that he was not sweating at all. Like it, just to the fact that he felt like he was, you know, I've been here before. He was kind of cool, calm and collected. But physically, he didn't sweat. And I was weirded out by that. Right. <laughs> Roger Federer had the no sweat thing too in his peak. He was sort of known as being always looking pristine and always having the hair falling just right, even, you know, into a fourth or fifth set of a match when everyone else is looking haggard. Uh, but but Alcaraz had a bit of that too, for sure. I, I don't know. I don't. He's clearly a physical beast. He's incredibly fast. He's powerful. He can do a lot of different things. And yeah, whatever he's doing in terms of that, it's, it's working well. I mean, he played one million sets in this tournament. For 23 hours. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, I'm I'm impressed. The no sweat and everything else is it's very impressive. But on to the women's side, um, Iga Sviantek. Yeah. She's only 21 as well. Mm -hmm. So she's won her second major this year. Um, talk us through her run in the U.S. Open and how the dominance of her has kind of vaulted her into number one status as well. Yeah, she's definitely become a dominant number one this year. I mean, she's in terms of the ranking points. Like they're roughly the same votes. You might not understand the points, but you can understand these numbers. Like Carlos Alcaraz hit number one. And he has about sixty-eight hundred points. Iga has about ten thousand six hundred. So she's way out in front wow. in terms of how much better she is in the pack. And she's about roughly about uh, yeah four thousand ahead of the next closest person in in women's tennis right now. She's just been the best. I mean, she won thirty-seven straight matches earlier this year. She reeled off a whole bunch of tournaments on hard court and clay court. Uh, had a bit of a dip uh, when the tour shifted to grass and came out of that, you know, didn't like the conditions in around the U.S. Open, but really steeled herself and, yeah, won this tournament. And she has this thing, especially in finals, where she just absolutely puts on beatdowns for people. And you saw that early in this match when it was like you were sort of worried if Jabir would get games and sort of, you know, just like it was 6-2 in the first set and Jabir felt lucky to get those two on some level with how well Shvantec was playing. So she, she's, a, she's the most dominant player we've had in tennis since – since Serena Williams left for her her maternity leave, honestly, she's the one who stepped up and really in women's tennis for sure. Since we've had, uh, you know, it, that had been sort of what I was talking about before. What the men might have sort of a bit of a chaos period where a lot of different people could have a good two weeks and, and grab a Grand Slam title. Uh, Shvantec is making sense that, that might not be the case anymore if she keeps playing like this. And and she's an incredibly well rounded player. She's very fast. She's got a lot of top spin. She plays a bit more like Rafael Nadal, uh, who's like the top speaking game. We haven't seen too much of that on the women's side, and it's been very effective at disrupting her her play. And yeah, she's only 21 and she's definitely seeming like she's in sort of, okay, just how far she can go kind of, kind of range. Like, can she make it to, you know, I don't want to put pressure on this, but like double digit kind of grand slam total someday. Like she's the first player in a while. I think you can sort of say has that kind of momentum. There's so much that can go wrong or, or other players who can show up and, and, dis and derail that. That's always a factor in tennis. You don't know what the future holds and you can't take anything for granted. But right now, like what she's doing looks pretty sustainable. And it seems like it's just a question of how far she's going to go in terms of racking them up. 
Um, okay, we, we we talked about the winners, um, but yeah. I got to talk about my guy, Francis Tiafo. Mm-hmm. I'd like the next 45 minutes of the show to be about Francis Tiafo. <laughs> it was great to see him. I mean, I've been following him since he was like 20, like 19, 20, and he would make kind of like a run to like, like a sweet 16 to like a big tournament, mm-hmm. and it seemed like he'd be pretty stoked about it. But this tournament, he definitely seemed like he had a different focus. He's serving like I hadn't seen him serve before. Uh, what do you see for the future of the best American man in the tennis world right now? Yeah, I'll actually start. But it wasn't even clear coming into before this tournament that he was going to be the best even of the Americans. I mean, there's kind of an interesting little group of them. But he really broke out the sort of run. And honestly, with the kind of charisma that the others don't have. Like in terms of being engaging, like he just makes people care. He takes her the whole stadium on his back and carries them with him wherever he's going. And he's had that quality for a long time, actually. He's always been a, a really, really magnetic performer out on court. Like he really is. And he has that that makes people care about him. And you just saw it with the way people were riding the wave. And he had a, a kind of the MVP of the tournament. I saw that he was actually the one who's like doing morning TV interviews and stuff uh, on Monday morning in terms of riding the New York media wave mm-hmm. after the tournament. It hasn't been, I don't, maybe Alcaraz is doing summer, but I don't know if it's Shantek a bit too, but uh, yeah, the Tiafo is definitely kind of the breakout star in a lot of ways, certainly in this market, in the American market. Uh, yeah. It, his win over Nadal was a big breakthrough. I mean, Nadal had not lost a match at a grand slam all year. He'd won the first two grand slam titles and then pulled out of the Wimbledon semifinals. So Tiafo was the first guy to step up and beat him. And it really is just a great sort of coming to fruition or manifestation of what people have been saying about him for a long time. I mean, that's the thing with tennis is the really serious players get serious about it. It's such young ages. And Tiafo was mm-hmm. out there winning. I think he won this tournament in France called the Petit As when he was like, I think 12 or 13, like, which is sort of the best, like under 13 tournament. Um, so that put him on a national spotlight early. And then people found out about his, his backstory with his parents coming from Sierra Leone and, you know, living at the club and, and doing different things like that. Um, and so there's been a lot of eyes on him and a lot of attention on him from a very young age, really since before, almost before he was a teenager. And so for him to step up and, and have this moment and seize it and continue to sort of have put his head down and do the work a lot of times uh, in terms of getting to, to improve the serve, to improve the physicality. I mean, he went five sets with, with Alcaraz in the semifinals and was there all the way in that match. I mean, he was ready. and just happened to mm-hmm. run into this guy. And that's what I sort of said. Like, Francis, like, almost sort of deserved having a bit of a, I don't want to say fluke, because it wasn't fluke because he beat Nadal, but having the, the seeds part a little bit for him instead of having Alcaraz just come and crash and knock everybody out right away. Um, but, yeah, but Francis is, is there and, and, and has this incredible, yeah, star power. We have not seen American men's tennis in a long time, probably since Andy Roddick, I think it's the last player on the men's side who had that kind of that kind of charisma. And yeah, it's been, you know, almost 20 years since Roddick won the last American men's Grand Slam. No one's even made a Grand Slam final from American men since 2009 and Roddick made his last one. So yeah, Tiafo. I mean, I've known Tiafo since he was like 15. I, I live in DC. So he grew up in College Park, which is like five, 10 miles yeah, from where I live. Come on, man. Yeah. So, I know exactly what the hell is yeah, going yeah. on. <laughs> I don't know. I see, your, I see the, is that commander's hat, right? It's a Washington Commandments hat. I like to call them Commandments. commandments. That's better. There's a lot of better names that are out there for that team. But that's a different story. Um, uh, but yeah, but no, Tiafo grew up there and, and was kind of going to school in their system there. And he's just been a, a huge pride of this of this community. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, showing that you can grow tennis talent without having to sort of be, you know, taken out of where you grew up and repotted in some Florida Academy, like so many of the kids, mm-hmm. kids do uh, for him to stay a, a DC product and stay sort of connected to the the kids there. And he knows like all, you know, the teenagers are there training. He knows them all by name and he's sort of this sort of mentor role model figure there. Anyway, he, there's a lot of great things to say about Tiafo. I, I saw someone say um, from Blair Henley, who sort of does some of the encore interviews at a bunch of the tournaments that she was saying when he's playing Alcaraz, I think in the semi, she said that probably there's never been a match where some people felt like they had like a close friend, getting this close to the final. Like so many people would consider yes. Francis a friend and and he's just that kind of engaging and, you know, giving hugs to everybody and just being friendly and normal and no, you know, he believes in himself and he can be cocky in his own way, but there's no ego to speak of in terms of acting like he's better than people. Um, so he's, he has a lot of, uh, a lot of things going for him and this was a great, great moment for him. And yeah, I, I just hope that, you know, he can keep this, this momentum up, which is not easy. I mean, there's four months basically till the next grand slam in Australia and that's that's a that's a long time to keep sort of your altitude in tennis. So you got to keep you know slap them in your wings all the time to stay up there in this challenging world. But uh, but yeah, he, he definitely showed that he has the game. I think the game looked better than ever. I mean, you know, we've know we've had the charisma yeah. and had the personality, but the actual tennis 
was the best he's ever been. So hopefully that can that can stay there. Hey, be honest. When you saw him warming up in that uh, Bradley Beal jersey, you kind of knew he was doomed, right? <laughs> Is that what did it? <laughs> I don't normally think of associating with the Wizards as being the mark of a champion, to be honest. But but you know, it, it shows that he's true to his roots. He's not gonna. Yeah, he has he wasn't LeBron, gonna change he, up. He has his LeBron jersey and stuff, so he can he can you know. <laughs> you know but see, seeing Brad in the stands and stuff was was cool. They showed him on camera a lot on like the international feed. A I was like, lot. I was like, do any of you people know who Bradley Beal is? If you're like watching in Europe, <laughs> probably not. But it's nice for him to get. I know Contavious was there. I was like, hey, do, do yeah. people know who that is? <laughs> they could have give Contavious a few more crowd shots. I feel like there's yeah. a lot of Brad and come on, Contavious had just did his braids. He just redid his braids for this. <laughs> For this moment. But also, I love what you said. It feels like it was a friend because I felt that way when he did get eliminated. And, you know, in his interview, he said, I'm sorry I let everybody down. Like, I just I got so emotional. I was like, no, you didn't. You did great. This is your time to shine. So I love that you said that because I I also hope he can ride that wave and the all the eyes being on him and being in the semis can only propel him forward. Absolutely. And look, I mean, there has not been really, there's so much support for him in the world. I don't know if you saw like Michelle Obama, obviously saw on on TV, Michelle Obama was there, but she went and met with him afterwards and was saying a lot of the same things you just said, like, you know, keep your head up. Like you didn't disappoint anybody. It was a really cool video. Uh, People should look up and check it out. It's on social media. People have ripped it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's just so much goodwill around him. And honestly, American tennis has been looking for a breakout uh, black star on the men's side really since, since Arthur Ashe. I mean, James Blake did a bit um, for sure. And he got to be a top 10 player uh, in his time, but it's been a big, big gap where there's been all these women who've been following in the uh, William sisters footsteps, you know, lots of less successful black women, some Stevens, Madison keys, Coco golf, Naomi Osaka, you could throw in there, even if she represents Japan, she's definitely one of the sort of Williams family's, you know, legacy. Uh, but, but there hasn't been anybody on American men's tennis uh, sort of, on the black side of things. And it's just, it's something that the sport is known has been missing. It's known has been a hole. And so for Francis to, to come up and hopefully, hopefully take that and hopefully sustain it and continue being a face for the sport. I mean, this is also even just on the American tennis side. This is the first time I think since 2011, there was ever a grand slam where the best men's result was better than the best women's result from the Americans. So it shows like how, how good women have been, been taken for granted for sure. Um, And Serena has been a lot of that, obviously for a lot of that run. Um, but yeah, but Francis is hopefully breaking some new ground for, for the American men. Yes. Well, since you brought her up, <laughs> yes, let's talk about Serena because, wow, that her whole run, it's been amazing. It set records. Everybody who's everybody was watching her final match. But what was it like? to witness and watch the GOAT. Like, there's no argument. She is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. What was it like witnessing that? Potentially, maybe, hopefully not, her final match. So I'll be honest, going into the U.S. Open, I was nervous for her because I was at her her previous tournament, her penultimate tournament, potentially in Cincinnati, um, and she looked rough. She got mm. beaten 6-4, six, 6-love, six got bageled. By Ember Adekana, who was the last year's US Open champion, a good player, but just like Serena looked out of it and she looked slow and she looked just like not, it was like really a shadow of herself. And I was sort of just wondering, like, oh, like this could be, she's 40 and she hasn't played in a year barely and she doesn't look like she's in her best shape and she's really slow and she could get honestly embarrassed potentially with all this sort of pageant she was coming in New York. But once she got there and she, as she did put in, you know, a, a lot of hard work in those 10 days. She got a, she got a new coach. She started playing a lot of practice sets against the top active players, which she doesn't usually do. Usually mm-hmm. she keeps her training very private, but then she was like, I want to have, you know, get some, you know, real sort of skin in the game and these practices and bring in some of the other sort of top five players in the world and, and hit with them and play live sets against them and practice to train. And she did a remarkable job of leveling up in those 10 days, um, especially by the time she got to the second round, which was the biggest match she won. She played the number two seed in the world, uh, Annette Contevite, and won that in three sets. And by then, she was just playing great tennis. That was a very high-level match. That was not Serena sort of, you know, BSing her way through with some sort of, you know, guile or just grit. Like, the tennis level was very high there. And then you're sort of thinking, like, man, if she had had whatever, and maybe this is unfair to her, but she had the kind of prep and dedication she had over these last incredible 10 days for, you know, three months, and she could have won this tournament, potentially, because the the skill and the ability is still there, and it's still so pure, and just the technique and everything and the serve are all still great. She still obviously, you know, doesn't have the foot speed she did when she was 20 or, or 30 or 35 even, but, you know, she still could go out there and she 
acquitted herself really, really well in the end. I think she really did her legacy and her tennis proud. Uh, she lost in the third round to Ayla Tomjanovic, who played really well. That was another really high-quality match. And I was really impressed by Tomjanovic that she was able to hang in there mentally in front of this crowd. Because in the stadium, it was, you know, deafening for Serena. And and anytime she did anything well, people were cheering. People were cheering for double falls for Tomjanovic and stuff, which a lot of times tennis people try to be, you know, sitting on their hands and all proper and polite, but people want to see Serena win every point. So anytime Serena won a point, they didn't really care how it came, which is totally fair. Uh, so, so yeah, but Serena, I think has to feel good about how she went out. And this, if this was her last, um, you know, it was, a, I think a really fitting true to go out and she seemed content with it. She seemed happy yeah. you know, as much as she said that she was dreading it. I think, you know, she was smiling a lot and seemed, you know, in a good mood and just on the media side, like she came and did all her press conferences, which is not something she reliably does. <laughs> in this stage of her career, especially <laughs> after a loss. Like we were like, oh, well, well, there goes Serena. Like, will she do press at all? But she was there and willing to talk and just sort of engaged and seemed to be, you know, embracing the moment and, and riding the wave. And there was a lot of years in her career for sure where she wasn't getting the adulation and, you know, love from the crowd uh, in New York or anywhere uh, really mm -hmm. reliably. But then in this last sort of, you know, six, seven years, sort of has been sort of her coronation era when she's been sort of affirmed as being as being the best and that sort of outpouring of love has been really consistent for her. So I think she's been relishing that uh, sort of, you know, uh, overdue and sometimes making up for what the lost time was. Well, aside from the obvious, you know, do, do you have any uh, favorite moments from your mm. time at the tournament this year? Like it's in Queens. Like when you walk in the building, like, is there like a dude with like a, a Nike like headband on and like a oversized Looney Tune t-shirt? Like what is like does it even feel like you're in Queens? Like is it like another planet? Like once you wow. once you get inside the gates, no, but but even just on the way from the subway to the tournament, which is like a you know, half mile walk from because they share a subway station with uh the Met Stadium, sure yeah, on the other yeah. side of the tracks in, in Flush and Meadows. So but like there, like especially like during on Serena days and even on non-Serena days, like the number of sort of like bootleg Serena t-shirts that are being sold out on the out Dang. on the on the boardwalk was and I was just thinking like man Serena wish I got one. Serena didn't have her own merch game ready to because she would have made a you know probably literal a million dollars selling Serena merch at the CS Open. Um but these people showed up with their, you know, trash bags full of Serena t-shirts and were selling them and seem to make good money off of that so it's sort of i guess maybe the queen's energy you're talking about there um yeah but but it's also you know it's just like it's very much a, a part of the city and part of you know queens too like most a lot of people commute out there because the traffic is terrible to, on the seven train and so you see all the normal people who are just you know going about their lives commuting to and from places in you know the eastern reach of where the seven goes all the way up to flushing and yeah it's just it's part of the community and part of this very very diverse uh you know atmosphere definitely so much more than what you get at you know, Wimbledon, which is the previous one where you're in this sort of very leafy, rich suburb in south, south, Southwest London, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Flushing Meadows is not like that. And yeah, if you go, you know, into uh, where I was, sort of, I drove this year for whatever reasons and was parking somewhere that was sort of near all these volleyball courts in the Flushing Meadows Park in Corona Park. And, uh, and yeah, just seeing all these, you know, volleyball games with lots of like Ecuadorians playing these like intense volleyball matches and picnicking, barbecuing, you know, about half a mile from where U.S. Open is happening, people are having their twenty-five dollar cocktails and whatever else. Like it definitely is part of the part of the city and part of this of this diverse world, which is definitely uh, a cool vibe to be able to to embrace. One time for all my guys in Corona, man, the the Lemon Ice King, Cool oh G Rap, <laughs> you know what I mean? Get at me. <laughs> so we have to talk about kind of the last person, Nick Kyrgios. It's kind of like a train wreck that you can't look away from uh, his personality and pending legal issues. But he's also such an immense talent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's kind of frustrating. He made it to the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open. But in your opinion, will he ever kind of get it together and win a Grand Slam event? He's been closer than I think a lot of people thought he might get in these last two because he made the final Wimbledon and lost to Djokovic and could have won that match. It was a four-setter. I mean, it was it was really pretty neck and neck in a lot of ways and not a lot of margin there for Djokovic. And then he made, yeah, he beat the number one seed, Daniel Medvedev, in this tournament in the fourth round before losing the quarters. I mean, he's been close, but he is just such a chaos agent in the sport. And you never know sort of how much his temper is ever going to get in trouble and, and how much his his you know demeanor will just sort of have a meltdown and we've seen lots of meltdowns from over the years but he's improved his mindset he's improved his fitness a lot in this last year or so and he was 
very much a legitimate contender to win this tournament. News in the draw. He absolutely could have done it. Um, and and yeah, and, and he just sort of had lost a, a tight match. He probably should have won in the quarters. Uh, he would have played Casper Rude in the semis and he would have beaten Rude and gotten to the final against Alcaraz. Uh, he could have done it for sure. He could have done it. And so, and he was hurt. He definitely was hurt. This loss, I think, hurt for him more than any other losses he's probably had because he's for so long, he wasn't putting himself out there and really trying. He wasn't really committing and always had sort of an excuse of like, well, you know, if I actually gave my all, I'd probably do one of these things. And now he's starting to actually give it his all. And so when he falls short there, it's more painful for him. So we'll see how long that that kind of commitment for him can, can last. He, he's Australian. He's the Australian Open coming up next. It's going to be a big tournament for him in terms of the Grand Slams. Um, he can He's definitely in the mix there to win that one as well. Uh, so we'll we'll see how it how it goes for him. But you just you don't know. And there's always just so much I'd say chaos and noise around him and all sorts of things that are pretty unsavory at times, honestly, just in terms of sitting on court level, just like hearing the amount of like insulting he's doing to like his friends and family in the, in the box constantly throughout the match. It's really unpleasant to have to sit there and listen to it. Honestly, at times Um, he has a, he has a court case coming up in Australia from an ex-girlfriend of some sort of what seems like a minor, but still assault charge of some kind that's coming up for him. And uh, yeah, like it's, it's just, there's a lot of things that are, can be off-putting about Nick to say the least for sure. Um, but at the same time, the electric moments are still people. You see how crazy people get for him and how much he still can light up the uh, the, the stage. I think you know Tiafo is. Some people say like here's Tiafo, who's sort of the non-problematic version of of, of Kyrgios, and he has all the a lot of the Kyrgios qualities without any honestly of the downsides. Um, but but Nick is still a very intoxicating mix for a lot of people, and a lot of people still you know he still packs stadiums and still is someone people care about a whole lot, um, even if he is a, a complicated uh, character, for sure. We ran out of time. We couldn't talk about Casper Ruiz. Shout out to all my people out in Norway, Oslo, Bergen, Trondheim, Stavanger, my man Carl Brown. We see you, baby. I've been to Bergen. It's nice. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah it's nice. Out there. They, got, they got some fjords. They fjords. Big fjords? Big fjords. Elite fjords in, in Bergen. We got, we, me and my man, Ben Rothenberg, we got a couple fjords lined up. We about to be out in Norway getting this money. Once again, thanks for coming on the show, Ben. He is the host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. It is in your phone. It is in your internet radio right now. He is the editor at Racket Magazine. You can read it right now. It's in a magazine right now. Ben Rothenberg, folks. Ben, thanks for joining the take. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me, guys. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source. The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. over the middle. How's he that wide open? Jefferson again inside the 10. Lunging for the end zone. Touchdown! The NFL kicked off on Sunday, and now that the chase for the Lombardi Trophy is on, fantasy football leagues around the world are officially underway. If you started Minnesota wide receiver Justin Jefferson, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Pat Mahomes, or the Pittsburgh Steelers defense in week one, odds are your team is off to a flying start. Here to discuss the NFL season from a fantasy football perspective is Chris Towers of CBS Sports. Chris, welcome to Take Line. Hi, thanks for having me. Football is back. Football's back, Jack, and I cannot wait to have the next 
17 Sundays of my life taken from me. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my Sundays are like wake up at nine in the morning, start writing and just keep writing until two in the morning. So that's, uh, yeah, taken from me is, uh, is a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That, oh man, in the night game. So boring. Mm, it was delight. It was delicious. These island games, man. I do these Monday night football hits after the game every week. And last season, it felt like nine weeks in a row. It was just like me and the host were just like, we got to stop meeting like this because these games were terrible. <laughs> the only thing worse than a bad Sunday night, Monday night game is a bad Thursday night game. Some of the worst games. And we started off the year with a big injury already. Dak Prescott. Yeah. Hurt his hand. Mm. Looks like he's out for six to eight weeks with a thumb injury. How is this going to affect all of the um, the dum dums who pick Dak in their fantasy league? How do you think Tom Brady? How, like, is he going to be someone you should start going forward? Yeah, I guess the the good thing about someone like Dak Prescott—that's the wrong way to put it—but the good thing about a quarterback suffering an injury relative to the other positions is like. There are a lot of good ones in the NFL right now. And so, you know, I was the person this year for fantasy who said you should take an early round quarterback. You should take Josh Allen. You should take Patrick Mahomes because those guys are such difference makers. And we saw that in week one with both of those guys. But, you know, there are still guys out there like, you know, Justin Fields had a pretty good game in week one. Marcus Mario, the quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, rushed for 72 yards and and so you shouldn't have trouble finding someone who's good enough that it's not a disaster for your team. Obviously, you'd rather have Dak Prescott, but it's a bigger disaster for the Cowboys than it is for your fantasy teams because, you know, you might be able to trade for Kirk Cousins or Derek Carr or even Aaron Rodgers coming off a really bad week one. You know, remember, he had an awful week one last year. People started freaking out and he ended up winning the MVP. So I, I think you can still bet that he's going to be pretty good moving forward. So. For your fantasy team, it's not really that big of a loss with Dak Prescott. But for the Cowboys, you know, there are a lot of injuries where we have to kind of guess what the impact's going to be. Cowboys went through this in 2020, and they went from averaging 32.6 points per game with Dak Prescott as their quarterback in the first five games to 21.1 with, you know, a combination of Andy Dalton, Ben DiNucci, and Garrett Gilbert. Now they've got Cooper Rush, who is a... 28-year-old, I think he was undrafted. He's a 28-year-old who has started one game in his career. He was wow. actually pretty good in that game last year, but there's a reason he's a 28-year-old who has started one game. It's it's <laughs> weird that the Cowboys didn't try to upgrade their backup quarterback position. They have the fourth most cap space in the NFL. They saw what happened the last time Dak Prescott got hurt. This is an incredibly top-heavy team that for some reason opted to go into the NFL season with one healthy, good wide receiver, no competent backup quarterback, and uh, an offensive line that has struggled with injuries. So I, I think there's a real chance this season goes incredibly sideways for the Cowboys, which, you know, depending on your perspective, could be a lot of fun. You know, I, I might be okay with that. <laughs> I'm here for that. The pettiness. They look pretty good yesterday, yeah. the Commanders. The commies. Well, here's what I want to say about it, the commanders. I know that you are the expert that we brought in onto the show. Oh, but no. if you are <laughs> if you are new to commanders football, what's gonna happen is we're gonna look spectacular for about four and a half weeks, and then we're going to fall off a cliff. <laughs> and not like a metaphorical cliff, like I mean like a Looney Tunes Wiley Coyote style cliff. We're gonna fall into the Grand Canyon. I thought that was going to happen yesterday. I was surprised they pulled it out because there was the point where Carson Wentz had that really bad interception where he threw it right at a defensive lineman. And I was like, oh, well, this is, <laughs> I've seen this play before. I know how this works. But <laughs> they actually ended up pulling it out. So that was surprising. No, I, I feel similar. I grew up as a Dolphins fan. I wouldn't say I'm a Dolphins fan anymore, but like, it's like a phantom limb, you know, where like I can still feel it. And every time the Dolphins are on, I'm still like, I hope something good happens. But you've been a fan of that team for long enough that you know that, like, you shouldn't expect good things to happen because <laughs> that's how you get hurt. And so I, I feel similarly about them as, as you seem to about your team. So much of watching football <laughs> is like you could compare it to 
caring for an ailing relative. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, just hoping, like, I think something bad's going to happen. But I hope it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope something good happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's, right. a, that's a fair analogy. <laughs> that's quite the comparison. But I, I get it. I get it. I like Phantom Limb a lot better um, because it feels like I relate to this in with my Sparks fandom, mm-hmm. with my Lakers fandom. It's just like it pains me to see you do bad, but I'm hoping good always, always. Yeah. Yeah. The only team I, I root for that I have any emotion left with is the Marlins. And if you know anything about baseball, you know that. That's just a masochism thing at this point. That's just because I feel like I don't deserve better. Just want to feel something, you know? Yeah, good or bad. (laughs) Just want to feel alive. Just want to feel alive. Yeah, you got to picture fandom based on that. You were talking a little bit about quarterbacks, but who is the top fantasy quarterback this year? You did mention uh, Patrick Mahomes. He made a statement with his 360-yard, five-touchdown performance against Arizona. Is there someone you'd rather have on your roster as a top fantasy quarterback? Yeah, I think Josh Allen is the top guy. He's been uh, either the number one or number two quarterback the past couple of seasons. He was incredible in that first game against the Rams. The Rams offense really couldn't do any, or defense couldn't do anything to stop him. But, you know, I think the edge he gives you is just with his legs. You know, Patrick Mahomes is mobile, but he's not a runner. And that's Mm -hmm. the difference. Josh Allen, you know, if you were watching that Thursday night game, the announcers were pleading with him to stop running late in the game because they were up by three scores and he was still putting his shoulder down and trying to run people over. So, (laughs) you know, when you're talking about fantasy, that's a big edge that he has. You know, I think there's a top tier of Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert from the Chargers and Lamar Jackson from the Ravens who... Had a three-touchdown game. He didn't really run much yesterday, but the Jets were, you know, pretty hapless, so he didn't really need to. But I think those four guys, if you've got them on your team, you've got a pretty significant edge on the competition. And maybe Jalen Hurts is in that group as well. He was pretty spectacular, rushing for over 90 yards in, in week one. What are your thoughts at running back? I got Cam Akers. I'm looking at Cam Akers on my roster <laughs> right now, and I'm ready to throw my phone in the woods. <laughs> yeah, it, He's coming back from that Achilles injury, and we saw him in the postseason last year. Didn't look great. He didn't look explosive. And that's just the toughest injury, I think, for any professional athlete to come back from. You look at the track record for the Achilles injury, and, you know, Kobe Bryant suffered it late in his career, and he came back. And it was impressive that he was still able to play, but he clearly wasn't the guy he used to be. Kevin Durant is kind of a an outlier in terms of really returning to his former high level of production. So Achilles injuries tend to be very tough. And I don't know, there were some quotes from Sean McVay coming out of week one where it was less, you know, it was like Cam Akers needs to show us consistently play in and play out that he can play at the level we want him to and give the effort we want him to. So that was pretty concerning, but I think he'll get a chance at some point because Daryl Henderson, who is, you know, the expected starter at this point for the Rams, He's had trouble staying healthy. And so I think at some point, Cam Akers is going to get a chance and is going to be a decent fantasy option. But, I mean, three touches in week one. I think he played seven snaps. He's clearly not the guy right now. And that's bad because there were a couple of drafts that I did where he fell far enough that I finally took him. And now I'm kind of stuck. You know, one of those, I don't really have a backup. I've got him and Devin Singletary. So Thursday night was not great for me. Oh, buddy. Combined for seven points. Um, Oh, yeah, a nice time. I had Josh Allen with them. So like, the three of them combined for like 50 points. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll take that. Even All if, right. you know, Josh Allen had to do 90% of the heavy lifting. But <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't think you can look at Cam Akers as someone who has a spot in your lineup right now. You shouldn't drop him because I do think there's still a chance he becomes the lead back. But right now, yeah, the expectations should be very, very muted for him. Benchville, who's like a waiver target at running back after week one? Who do you, who do you think nobody's got right now who's hot? Uh, I think the the biggest targets are probably going to be Jalen Warren for the Steelers and Jeff Wilson for the 49ers because you had Najee Harris suffered a a setback with his Liz Frank injury in uh, the training camp, which is, Mm -hmm. that's a tough injury. So, you know, it sounds like it's not a season ender, but it could be a multiple week kind of thing. And Jalen Warren played every snap after Harris's injury. So I think he's going to get a lot of opportunities. And then Jeff Wilson is the likely lead back for the 49ers with Elijah Mitchell suffering a knee injury in week one. And Wilson is not as good as 
Elijah Mitchell. He hasn't been as efficient in that offense, but he got, I think, 15-plus carries in three, four games last season and had 15-plus PPR points in two of them. So he'll be a useful fantasy option, if not, you know, a superstar. I think those will be the two highest priority pickups. But otherwise, I think like Kenyon Drake is okay as long as J.K. Dobbins is out, but he's not going to be a star. I think the biggest guys that we saw in week one for the waiver wire are probably wide receivers like Curtis Samuel, I think is going to be very, very exciting. The usage that he got was a big deal yesterday. So yeah, I think um, Jalen Warren and Jeff Wilson will be the two biggest running backs on waivers. Dude, I already, mm. I already tried to claim Curtis Samuel on waivers. After week one, don't you not do that for a while? <laughs> I'm not even, nah. I didn't even. I Sunday morning at ten thirty, I was like, let me get him now. <laughs> he like was a big part of why I had some really bad teams last year because I think I had him in like half of my <laughs> leagues. And yeah, he never got healthy, oh, no. but. He's got this, like, nobody's Debo Samuel. You know, Debo Samuel is this one-of-one type of player who can be both a good running back and a good wide receiver. But Curtis Samuel, when he was with Ron Rivera in Carolina, he played in the backfield. He had 40 carries one season. He had four carries in week one, 11 targets. He is a really unique player who is currently healthy, and I think they're going to continue to use him in a, you know, really interesting way that will make him very valuable for fantasy. Okay, I have just bold predictions. I feel like you got some predictions going on, people off waivers, but what are your bold predictions for the year, team-wise or individually in fantasy? You know, I mentioned the the Dolphins thing earlier, and, and I've really been struggling with it because I'm getting really excited about them, not as a fan, but as an analyst. I think this is a really good team. Mm. So my bold prediction is they win 12-plus games. I don't know if that'll be enough to win the AFC East because Buffalo just looks completely freaking stacked but I think the Dolphins are going to be one of the best teams in the league I think they might be a top five or ten offense their defense is actually pretty solid so that's one bold prediction I have for the league I think um, another one I have that's more fantasy focused and it's a little easier to do after like every good wide receiver had an amazing game in week one you know you mentioned Justin Jefferson 180 yards and two touchdowns I'm gonna say five wide receivers have 1500 plus yards this season that, that would be a big deal you know we've mm. we've seen fewer really high you know historic production like that from wide receivers teams tend to spread the ball around more but you know you look around the league and you've got Justin Jefferson just looks uncoverable and, and Cooper Cup is you know the the most important part of that Rams offense I think Stefan Diggs I think Devontae Adams led you know he led the league in targets in week one at least entering Monday Night Football, and A.J. Brown, uh, Tyreek Hill had a big target share in week one, so I think wide receivers are going to dominate this year. I think there's just a lot of guys really primed for huge seasons. Plus that extra game. Plus that extra game. That's, you know, yeah. a little a little cheating, 1,500 yards, Dang. not quite as impressive as it was in a 16-game <laughs> season, but still, that's a lot of yards. That's a lot. It's a yeah. ton, bro. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So I think we're going to see, you know, historic high-level production from wide receivers this season. We kind of touched on Aaron Rodgers a little bit having a bad week one. And he always, he just hates week one because <laughs> he starts the year not ready for work every year. I think he's just messy. I think he just wants the drama. Yeah. Yeah. He thrives on, like, he needs to, like, create a narrative where everybody thinks he's terrible so he can— yeah you know, thrive against that. So this is like three years in a row now where he's been awful in week one. But do you think it's the tattoo? Like, is the tattoo giving <laughs> some powers or like, or going against? There's a lot of things going on with Aaron Rod. I mean, his like undercut haircut now, it, he's, he's got a look, man. I don't know. It, it's weird to like break up with Shailene Woodley and then get the weird tattoo. You know, you think those yeah. things, you know, you think you would get the weird tattoo when you're with her. But I don't know. He He's going through it. I think, as the as the kids say, um, in in a lot of ways, and mm -hmm. him and Tom Brady are both in this weird space now, where it's like the last two off seasons, both of them have been like, I might retire, I might not, and it's I always feel weird about those situations because it's like being an NFL quarterback is really really hard, and can you do it when you're yeah. 97 percent in? Yeah, I mean they're arguably the two best to ever do it, so you don't want to bet against them. And Tom Brady looked pretty good last night, but Rodgers, he also just. He's got very high standards for his teammates. And uh, 
The wide receivers were pretty bad yesterday. He didn't have anybody who can make a play. The one guy who did, Christian Watson, got wide open. Aaron Rodgers threw a perfect pass. That would have been a 75-yard touchdown. Christian Watson dropped it. Mm. I was surprised Aaron Rodgers didn't, you know, murder him on the field. Oh, with, uh, I mean, because, you know, he he had a quote in the offseason where he was like, you know, these rookie wide receivers that we've got, these young guys, they're playing really well, but they've got to catch the ball or they're not going to play. Mm. So that's the one thing you're supposed to do. And uh, I'm worried it could be an ugly season for Aaron Rodgers. I was a little worried about that coming in. But, you know, the thing about week one is always like react, don't overreact. And so you note it. You say, well, the wide receivers didn't look good. And Aaron Rodgers looked uncomfortable. And it looked like, you know, he didn't quite trust the receivers to be where they needed to be. But it's one week. We've seen bad games from him before. And we've seen him bounce back. So I I don't want to, you know, make it out to be this career ending thing for Aaron Rodgers. He's probably still going to be pretty good. Yeah, you hit the relax button, but I, I so my ultimate question is this is the last thing I'm gonna ask you. When is it time to make a trade? I feel like a lot of years in fantasy, mm. I fall victim to not wanting to pull the trigger. And one year I was in a league, and this guy, the one guy I didn't know, would send me bullshit trades <laughs> at like 3 a.m. Every week he would do it all season. And I was like, leave me alone. And then <laughs> I didn't make the playoffs anyway. So at some point I was like, I probably should have took that deal that looked bad and it would have been good for me. How do you know when to pull the trigger? It's always tough, especially like I'm in one league that I've been in for 22 years. I'm in another league that I've been in for, I think this is our 12th season. It's, it's a bunch of my college friends and I've got this one league where, you know, my, all my college friends are college newspaper. We've got like our discord channel and we, you know, talk all day and and we've got, you know, this whole thing, but it used to be like three trades a week. And then you reach a point where you've been playing with people long enough that you've like screwed over and been screwed over by every (laughs) single person in your league, or, you know, everyone's tendencies and you know, there's the one guy who's going to offer you a crap offer and try to like talk down to you and tell you why you should take his offer. Like all the players you're getting are great. (laughs) And all the players I'm getting are terrible. And it's like, so you're just never going to trade with that guy because you don't want to go through the process of like being condescended to. And so there's like the fantasy part of it where you're trying to make your team better. And that's hard enough because 17 game season is a small sample size and things change a lot from week to week. But then there's also the, sociological aspect of trying to trade with these people in your leagues who you just don't trust. And and so that's always really tough. It's like an art. But yeah, generally speaking, you know, to oversimplify, you want to identify the players who had a good game, but you don't really buy it and try to like Mm. DeAndre Swift had a really good game. And I think he's an incredibly good player, but he also, you know, averaged like nine yards per carry yesterday and, you know, split work with Jamal Williams and Detroit offense on the whole still looked pretty bad, although they did end up scoring 35 points. So, you know, they couldn't have looked that bad, but Mm. you know, that's one where like, he's a really good player, but is he going to get the usage he needs to be a top five running back? He looked like it in week one. But there were enough warning signs that it might be a situation where you can look and say, I could trade DeAndre Swift for Alvin Kamara and something else. And, you know, Alvin Kamara had a pretty disappointing week one. So it it could be a situation where you give up DeAndre Swift. He has a top five season and Alvin Kamara craters, you know, he is 27 or 28. So he's at the point in his NFL life where that happens to running backs Mm-hmm. That makes me feel really old as a 34-year-old to, you know, <laughs> that's a weird thing about talking about sports is someone my age, you're like, wow, he's the ageless wonder. And it's like, <laughs> I still feel pretty young. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's that's always, you're trying to find the the two ships passing in the night and, you know, you're trying to get the guy who's on the upswing and trade the guy on the downswing. So it's tough. And then you add in the trying to deal with your league mates part. It's It's tough. I was ready to find out where this guy lived and fight him. (laughs) (laughs) For the trades? Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. It makes you, like, spiteful. Like, when you get, like, the incessant trade offers that are just, like, disrespectful, and it's like, like, for me, it's like, this is, like, my job. And I've got people trying to take advantage of me. It's like, man, you must think I'm really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, I'm kind of dumb, but I don't think that dumb. Yeah. It's tough. Oh, no. Well, I, I feel like that would be me because I don't know what's going on. So I'd be like, 
I can, I'm persuasive. I'm a writer. I can, I can make you, you know, I can really talk up my, my trade talks. (laughs) That might be me. (laughs) That's, that's just don't try to talk people into the trades. That makes everybody hate you. That's, that's really the, the one takeaway is that when you're the guy who's like, here's why you have to make this trade. Everyone's just going to turn on you. You're just going to become the villain of the league. Oh, well, Thank you for all the tips. That one being the biggest one. Don't be the villain of the league. But thank you for, I feel smarter, going into fantasy football after week one. He is Chris Towers of CBS Sports. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great. Well, that's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Jason's pop culture and entertainment podcast, X-Ray, which comes out every Friday. Check it out. Bye. Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah de Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear debris with the 40-volt jet fan leaf blower. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, the Home Depot. How doers get more done. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.